Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guests are Joshua Pruitt and Scott Peterson. Joshua is an Emmy and Annie Award-nominated TV writer of Phineas and Ferb, Milo Murphy's Law, Mystery Science Theater, and the upcoming Netflix, The Last Kids on Earth. Scott Peterson is an Emmy-nominated executive producer and showrunner of also the upcoming Netflix's The Last Kids on Earth. These guys are both co-authors of the book, Shipwreckers, The Curse of the Cursed Temple of Curses, or We Nearly Died a Lot. Gentlemen, welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. How's it going? Thank you for having us. Yeah. I'm just so happy I got through the title of your book because it, it, is, <laughs> it is very long. Should we just first talk about that itself? Because I want to know how the hell did you come up with a title like that? Yeah, that's a great idea. Like, Scott, do you want to, like, what's the, what was the very, very beginning? When did we first start talking about this? Uh, like four years ago, I yeah. think. Yeah, we yeah, were, yeah. We were working together at Disney. Yeah. Uh, I think on the Haunted Mansion project that we, yes, they had brought us in to develop a Haunted Mansion animated uh, special. And we were feeling a little bit structured, impinged upon, yeah, limited. Yeah, yeah limited. And, yeah. and none of the series, we, we worked at lots of shows at Disney and, and just weren't able to do the kind of jokes and silly stuff that we wanted. People kept cutting our bad dad jokes. Yeah, we're really into puns. And, and so we thought, yeah, well, let's, let's write something that nobody can edit us on. Exactly. Something that felt more us. So it's like we, uh, at the time we had done, we had just done an adaptation of the Jungle Book movie, Favreau's film. So we did, we adapted a movie that used to be an animated film back into a film, back into a film, back into a book. So we didn't write the movie, but we, we adapted the screenplay <laughs> of the live action one back into a novel it was like a novelization of the film and we figured oh this would be a good chance to maybe try to pitch something original and shipwreckers was that project we we wanted to do something that was kind of silly and goofy and um was a little more in line with our very juvenile senses of humor yeah. so it's it's kind of like if you went off on an actual amazon cruise with one of the skippers from the jungle cruise at disneyland or we also talk about it as like Indiana Jones, if Indiana Jones was an idiot, and the kids going along with him were the actual heroes. So that was kind of the, the impetus for the book. And, yeah. and the title, I believe, just we wanted to make sure people knew it was funny right away. We didn't want people to think it was an action adventure. I mean, there is action and adventure in it, but primarily it's a funny book. Yeah, we didn't want people to think it was too serious. <laughs> so, so we kind of front-loaded everything up you know, uh, on the title, on the cover. Um, and a piece of this was Scott and I kind of realizing that in, in order to do your own thing, kind of in this industry, Scott has more experience than I do specifically. Quite but, a bit, actually. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's older. He's, 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 extensive. he's older. But we both kind of came to the conclusion rather quickly in our careers that, like, you know, it's hard to do your own stuff. And so we realized that it was going to take a lot of extra work and time and that it was always going to be kind of a two-tier experience. So... We're very privileged and work our tails off when it comes to, you know, TV and animation as our full-time job. 
but also we do these things on the side because we want people to, to read our stories, the things that we would tell if we weren't even getting paid for them. Yeah, I agree. So you guys are basically finishing each other's sentences. I want to get, before we dive into Shipwreckers, tell me about how this whole co-writer, co-author, working together thing, because I know you worked on some of the same projects, some you didn't. How did you meet? Tell me the origin story. <laughs> it's a sordid affair. No, it's not. <laughs> we met on oh, – what's your version of it? <laughs> I want to hear your version. <laughs> I was story editor on Phineas and Ferb for about eight years. And midway through, they brought in a couple of new storyboard artists, and one of them was, was Josh. And I thought, oh, he's, he laughs very loudly. <laughs> So confirmed, like, confirmed. Oh, okay, this guy's too easily You amused. did write me off right away, yeah, yeah. And then there true. was a meeting where he made he, he made a really good, incisive story comment that wasn't even about what he was drawing. And I was like, oh, this guy has a really good story sense. He's much smarter than he appears in person. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, maybe I should give this guy a chance. Yeah, that's close. Yeah, when I joined the show, I realized that very few people... The way it works on Phineas, and we should talk a little more about this uh, after we're done with the book, but the way it worked on Phineas is that it was a board-driven show. So Scott and the team of writers, they would develop these outlines that were approved by the producers, and then writer, board artists like myself and a partner, we would take an 11-minute episode and we would take the outline, we would storyboard the whole thing and also write the dialogue. And so everyone kind of was trusted with parts of the storytelling process. And what I discovered when I joined the show is that not a lot of people on the writer board side had pitched original ideas. And so that was really my experience. I came from DreamWorks feature animation as a story artist. I was there for five years and I really wanted to write more. And so when I joined the show, I was like, oh, I should I should pitch some original ideas. And Scott was really open to it. And we kind of hit it off because we're both huge horror movie buffs. So one of the first things I pitched him was ended up being our zombie episode called Night of the Living Pharmacists. Um, and I pitched kind of the basic idea, the shape to Scott, and he really took to it. And we developed it together and it became an hour long special. Yeah, we'd been trying to kind of break the idea of doing a zombie story on Phineas, but couldn't figure out how because it's all about killing people. And you can't really do that on a kid's cartoon. Right. Um, but Josh had a really unique take where everybody becomes a, a Dr. Doofenshmirtz and made it really funny. And it's and it was still scary by the yeah, end. Yeah, it, it was it came still out, scary. But it, it came out really well. And so that was our first writing experience yeah. together. And we never looked back. Yeah, we, we were much more in Sapatico than we were kind of thinking. And so then we got to work on 100 Manch together that Scott was tapped for. And then uh, Milo Murphy's Law and now Last Kids. And we have got other fun things in the pipeline for down the road, we're hoping. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. We didn't, um, I wasn't expecting this to come out of that Phineas experience. I was really happy on that show. and But it was great. I got like a writing partner out of it and a good friend. <laughs> All right. A friend. A friend. A friend. <laughs> Amazing. You know, looking back at your bios, you know, Scott is also an executive producer showrunner. Will you continue to scott be a showrunner as well joshua are you working towards becoming that are you already a showrunner like tell me about where the showrunning side of things ties into this yeah i had been working as a story editor for years at disney and then got an opportunity to work as a showrunner at netflix 
actually one of the executives who used to be at Disney moved over to Netflix and she called me up and said, hey, would you be interested in finding out about this show? And that's The Last Kids on Earth. It's based on a best-selling book series by Max Brallier about kids uh, in an apocalypse where it's monsters and zombies everywhere. Stuff we hate. Yes, stuff that we can't stand. We can't stand that stuff. Uh, and I was like, oh my God, I have to be on this show. So I did my little dog and pony show and they said, yeah, let's bring him on. So this was my first time as a showrunner. And it's actually with a group up in Vancouver called Atomic Cartoons, who are just phenomenal. It's great working with them. But it's basically, yeah, it's, it's everything from writing and casting and animation and design and it's covering everything i think that's where josh wants to go too yeah i think eventually on milo i was really lucky because scott was very open to me having more involvement from a production standpoint and on the writing standpoint on the first the the, the two seasons of milo murphy's law scott and i wrote most of the kind of season arc episodes together that show is semi-serialized. It's wrapping up in like the next two weeks. But it's it's kind of an odd duck of a series, of a modern cartoon series. But we kind of built the architecture for that together. And that's like uncommon for a staff writer to get that kind of influence on a show. And so Scott uh, really kind of has been training me toward that over the last couple of years. So I'm hopeful that in the future that's where I'm headed. But in the meantime, I'm kind of writing his coattails as much as I possibly can. Smart. Very smart. <laughs> strategy. Strategy. <laughs> so before we get into the TV writing side of things, I definitely want to talk more about Shipwreckers, which yeah. is what you're working on now. So tell us, where's this at right now? When does it come out? Where are you at in the process? Who's it coming out from? And then we can kind of dive into like your process uh, writing and all that. Sure. It's coming out from Disney Hyperion on... Uh... May 21st. May 21st. Yeah. Uh, in stores. Yeah. In stores. You can already pre-order it online from lots of different people. Yes. Um, and we're having a book signing on May 18th, kind of as a premiere for them yeah. to let the book out. They're giving us some extra copies ahead of time so we can actually do a big... An actual book launch? Yeah. Yeah. And then we, like, as far as our process goes, like, some of this came out of, like, we had never, I had never written a book with another writer before. So we each had written things on our own, and then we had collaborated when we did Jungle Book. And we literally split the script in half, and we went off and wrote, you know, half of a 30,000-word novel, and then got back together and kind of rewrote each other. And that experience was not as rough and tumble as I would have thought. One of the things that I think I noticed is that when you work in TV, you are shooting, you guys know this, but you are shooting for kind of a hive mind. You're shooting for a tone that's been established by the showrunners. Right. And so what happened when Scott and I started writing novels together, the same thing applied where it was kind of a hybrid between our two tones. So it wasn't exactly all Scott. It wasn't exactly all me. It was something else. And that element or that tone was pretty clear from the off. So we knew what we were shooting for. So we approached Shipwreckers the same way. Jungle Book was kind of the training ground for Shipwreckers. Um, and so we did the th same thing. We actually applied a lot of our own, our process from Milo and Phineas to writing Shipwreckers. So what's like the first thing we did? Well, first we were just brainstorming, trying yeah. to think of all the fantastic things we'd want to do in the book. Yeah. And then slowly you realize, okay, now we got to sit down and grind out what the story is, who these characters are. So we spent a lot of time 
uh, outlining and exploring who the characters are and what their arcs were and figuring out what that was. And, and we did similar things on, on Jungle Book. It wasn't just yeah. splitting it up. We, we thought about, yeah, yeah. okay, what themes are we exploring? Yep. What kind of ways do we want to get into Mowgli's head? And we did the same thing here of, of our main characters. What are they experiencing? How are they changing? What's their point of view? We broke it like it was a big feature. Yeah. Like we did the yeah. note cards. We did three acts. We did story arcs. We did it on boards. We did it on note cards um, that were colored so we could keep Ooh. track of what we were doing. Because we, our thought was if we applied the same rigor that we learned in television to the novel writing, like it was going to put us in a much stronger position. So that by the time we got to the jokes, when we got to the fun part, like all the heavy lifting would be done. Yeah. So by the time we actually started physically typing out chapters, we knew where everything was going. We knew what had to happen in each chapter. And so we could play a little bit. Yeah. Get the funny in. And working on Jungle Book first gave us a lot of freedom. It's like we could cut our teeth on that and kind of make any mistakes or kind of growing pains on that so that by the time we got the ship records, it was a little more polished. I mean, we, we felt the experience was anyway. Yeah. And hopefully people reading will feel that way too. So you said you worked on uh, colored note cards. Is there a reason why you chose to use a more uh, tangible way of uh, taking your notes? I'm assuming you maybe put that up on a cork board as opposed to like working on like a Word doc or a Trello board or something to that effect. I think we learned when doing storyboards and when breaking stories in animation that it helps just to see it spread out in front of you. And you can see, okay, wait a minute, we've got 15 pink cards over here in the first act and one in the third act. That's not going to work. You know, if the pink cards all represent one of the leads in this show is called Danny. If Danny's story is all in the first act and there's nothing in the third act, that's not going to work. Or mm-hmm. if, our, if our second act is five times as big as our third act, okay, something structurally is wrong. And you can just instantly see that when it's up on cards and move things around. And it's just, for me at least, I think better that way than yeah. when I see it on a computer and I'm scrolling back and forth and it's, it's much easier to conceptualize it when it's laid out in front of you. It's easy to get lost in a digital file. And like my background as a storyboard artist is that I'm a very visual thinker. And I kind of wish writing was a three-dimensional process, like in my early report, like I wish that we could just go in and kind of move objects around in space, like Tom Cruise when he's working on that interactive screen. Which of us would be Tom Cruise? Oh, me. me, (laughs) me, Always me. And then, like, being able to kind of, like, from an artistic standpoint, it's like uh, I have one of my my master's degrees in illustration. And so when you're working on a composition, like, one of the things you do is you stand all the way back from your composition and you squint at it. And you're looking for clarity. And so for me, that's that's what this part of the creative process looks like in writing, is that you're trying to make sure that the bones look right. And it's hard to see that when you're you know up to your neck in a document, um, being able to step back and go, yeah, that looks like the right shape. That, that looks like it has the right rhythms and the right feel for this thing. Then you feel like you can kind of jump in with both feet. Yeah. And we would sometimes even do that after the fact. Like we, yeah, right. we write a really rough draft and then we look back again and go, wait a minute, we're spending three chapters on this action sequence, yeah. but it, that's not progressing the story. It's fun, but it doesn't deserve that much time in the 300 pages. Yeah. So it's, it's good ahead of time, but it also can be used after the fact. Yeah, definitely. Tell us about the arcs for the characters. You mentioned that you arc the characters, obviously. I'm assuming maybe with those note cards... What does it look like? Are you saying, okay, plotting point A for character number one and uh, to point B, which is at the, at the end of the book, per se, and then you've got 
all the no cards across and in between? Or is there a different step that maybe I'm missing in there? Or No, that's about the shame. Yeah, you, you just, as in any drama or any piece yeah. of, of fiction, you want to start the character as far away from the ending state as you can get. So if somebody ends up super brave at the end, you start them out super scared at the beginning. And then you plot the different actions along the way that help to turn them, what makes them change their mind, what makes them take a step across that chasm that they were, weren't were going to cross before. Yeah, we kind of, the, the main characters are Captain Kevin, who's like our idiot, and who thinks he's, you know, Indiana Jones, and he can do anything. And Mike, who is like 12 or 13 years old, and his little sister, Danny, and Mike would rather be reading than actually experiencing real adventure in life. And Danny is really like an excitement hound, like an adventure hound. And so once we knew where we, everyone was starting, then we were able to kind of, okay, well, what's the end point? Where do we want to carry these characters to? And then how does that support our theme? Like some of the themes we were playing with in the story was, you know, is there any adventure out there in the modern world? What does that look like? Like, Has everything been discovered already? You know, in, yeah. we've, with satellites and everything, there's no, there's no mystery left out there. And that was kind of Mike's point of view. And if there's no mystery, then I'm not going to stick my neck out because why, yeah. why take risks if there's no reward? Yeah. And so taking a character who's kind of least likely and running him through his paces, that's what we were tracking. So we wanted to make sure that it was an emotionally satisfying experience for all three characters and that they all three kind of moved the needle a little bit so that there was some growth. We didn't want them to become new people. Because sometimes the extreme of that is like, it's too much. Also, we want to make sure we write sequels. <laughs> and we want sequels. Right. So there's a very, there's a there's strategy behind that as well. But it's also, it's, you know, it's fun for them to have some growth so that it makes them relatable, I think, too. And I think that was important for us is taking the things that we've learned in TV and applying them here, you know, in a different format, but still, you know, connecting with the audience. That's still our number one goal is so that people see themselves when they're reading this book. They see aspects of themselves. And that's one of the things we learned in TV, too, is you can make a really funny series, but it doesn't resonate with people. They don't want to come back and watch it again and again. They'll watch it a couple times if they don't relate to the characters. If they don't go, oh, my gosh, Perry the Platypus is my favorite. I want to see him again. Yeah. So you have to ground those characters in reality to get people to, to care about. Characters really number one. Yeah. When you're working on the brainstorming, the outline, the character arcs, at what point are you like, do both of you know, okay, we're ready to move on to actually writing this thing? Was there a specific moment where you're like, okay, we're ready now? I don't think there was. I think we just, Uh, at a certain point, we're like, okay, we've beat this horse to death. We got to start writing. Yeah. Because even after you write the first draft, you're not done. You've got to go back and then go, okay, we we drop the ball here, here, and here. Yep. We got to go back and weave in some more character stuff here. Or like I said, cut out a whole chapter because we need that real estate for some character work. Yeah, one of the many benefits of working in a partnership and a duo is you have someone else to help judge things. So there's stuff that like maybe I'm super married to or I'm not sure if it's working. And, you know, Scott is kind of dead inside. So I know <laughs> that if, there, if I pitch something and he really reacts to it, then I know that's working. Yeah. So kind of using your partner as the litmus test for success, like that's worked really well for us, I think. Because if like, it's easy when it's a joke, if both of us laugh, because I always laugh at my own jokes, it doesn't matter. But if he laughs too, then that means maybe it's worth keeping. But even when it comes to story 
points, if there's something that kind of gets his attention or vice versa, if he pitches me something and I can see kind of the puzzle pieces clicking together, then, you know, I get really loud and enthusiastic about it. And then it's like, no, no, you know, let's chase that, you know, let's do that thing. Yeah. Every writer and every artist I've ever met is filled with self-doubt, if not self-loathing. And so having somebody to say, no, no, this is good. Or yeah, let's, let's take another look at this is extremely helpful. Yeah. I would imagine that not being prideful is a very important part of writing. When there's two writers, you have to kind of know when to stick with an idea or go with the other writer's ideas. What are the biggest challenges for you guys when you're working together to kind of choose a story? I know you were talking about the things that definitely stuck, but what about when maybe there's something you want to do, but the other person doesn't want to do that? What do those challenges look like? I think I just overrule you, don't I? (laughs) (laughs) On last kids? Yes. Yes. When it comes to our kind of our personal work, like our books, like we haven't run into many blocks like so far. And we uh, we've written this. Is, we've written our third one already together. Shipwreckers is our second. Um, and so far, we don't like we tend to trust the other person's instinct when it comes to quality control, which is really helpful um, because we kind of know each other's. It's not tells, but it's like. Scott knows when I'm digging into something when I just think it's funny and stupid. So it's like, he has a good sense of like, okay, but that's not the best idea. And then he can talk me out of it. Or if there's something that he's fallen in love with, it's the same thing. So it's in trying to encourage each other to kind of kill your darlings. But because we've been working together so long, we like a lot of the same stuff. So it's a little easier to kind of get through that. And I I think we have a certain respect for each other and each other's talent so that it's not going to come across as mean-spirited if we give somebody a criticism. So we know it's coming from, hey, we both want this to be the best book ever, so there must be a reason this note's coming out. Even if I don't quite agree with it, it's like it's not coming from nowhere. It's not coming from, I want to be better than you, or, you know, it's it's coming from what's the best for the project. So I think that that makes a big deal, too. Absolutely. Like some of the best uh, collaborators I've ever worked with or uh, producers or showrunners I've ever worked with, they're people who aren't sweating the new idea. And so generally speaking, those kinds of like people coming to loggerheads, it's usually over insecurity. And so when Scott and I are working together, it's like definitely there's some trust there. But it's like we're not when a new idea comes to the table, we're excited. Right. If Scott comes up with something on the way to a meeting that we're having, like that's good news. That's exciting. That's something to celebrate. And so it's like there's a it's very open arms that way. Um, and you know, like Scott said, it's like the goal is really the thing. If we have the bullseye in mind, it's really easy to kind of trim the fat or prune things back. I'm mixing all my metaphors right now. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it's a lot easier to prune when you know what the bullseye is. You know, so the book we're working on right now is much more scary because that's one of the things that we really love. And so right now we're trying to modulate the scares against the humor because we want the humor to make sure that connects to the character and the audience is connecting to the characters. Humor is great for that. But we also want this thing to be scary. And so right now, like finding that balance, that's the thing we're helping each other out with. Because, you know, the, the ridiculous part of it is it, it is alchemy, right? It's like you don't really know, but you're, you're trusting your gut. And so, you know, when, some, when we're working on something new, I feel like I can trust Scott 
you know, to not write something terrible. And if it's terrible, I trust our relationship enough to be able to call it out and go, yeah, this kind of sucks. We need to make this better. And yeah, no one's going to get upset about that. And and Josh, did you want to let Court get a word in Edgewise? No, probably not. <laughs> I'm uh, looking at my watch right now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so <laughs> the next question is, working together, is one of you better at, let's say, dialogue, and one of you is better at a more high level, like, this is what you know the idea should be? Or is it kind of like you're both just as good at the writing, you're both just as good at the descriptions? Like, what are your pros and cons as a team? I would say... Josh has a real talent for big picture ideas that he can, I hate this phrase, but think outside the box. He's not limited. He's not scared to go, oh my God, what if it's a giant time travel thing and he's actually his own father? And it's like, okay, okay, okay. Maybe we back off from that a little bit, but it's a great place to start and it's a great place to get ideas. And he just is nonstop ideas. Scott's really good at like in the moment like what's the moment feel like how are we going to describe that to the audience and so some of that comes out in dialogue some of that comes out in description like where sometimes my instinct will be to rush over things because i'm so focused on the big picture and scott will kind of drill down on like that moment that's going to connect with people and like the fun thing is like how those skill sets overlap so that we get kind of the best of both worlds the Flickering Myth Podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alan Christian. I'm Gerald James. And I'm Lacey Day. And we host the Four Color Film Podcast. What do we do at the Four Color Film Podcast, Gerald? We watch and dissect every comic book-based film. Lacey, do you still like being here? Yeah, it's really great. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and wherever else they have Good podcasts and podcasts like these. You sound like a kidnapping victim. <laughs> also on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network at flickeringmyth.com along with other great shows. Check us out and check them out too. Thank you. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. you guys ever get writer's block i feel like maybe writer's block comes more to solo writers it sounds like maybe there's more checks and balances for you guys you're kind of all right cool like yes no let's move forward does that sound about right how do you feel about writer's block i i'm starting to come around to the idea that it's not real yeah that it's something people use when when they have other other issues like like i find when i stop writing it's because I've gotten to something that I'm struggling with, but it's not that I can't write. It's that I don't know the answer yet. Yeah. And so oftentimes I, I always tell Josh this, that I am happy to write just horrible crap. So if I, I just sit down and write, so even if, even if I, like nothing good is coming today, I'm still just going to write it. And usually something reasonable comes out of that. You're always going to go back and edit it. So it takes away that fear, which I think is a, a lot of people's writer's block, 
that, oh, I can't, this is no good. And so what? You write something that's no good, and then you go back and you make it better. Everything we do is so iterative that the idea of I'm going to sit down and write something brilliant is just off the plate. They're off the table, off the yeah. radar. It's, it's, yeah, it's the, not a thing. The, the freedom to write crap, I think, is a really important thing. I feel like writers in general, need to, we need to give ourselves permission to do that. One of the things like Scott was saying that I really learned from him over the years is sometimes you just have to type. And like, I remember the first time he said that to me, I was like, wait, what? And, and, and the way in, I've explained it in my head now is that, you know, okay, you put a lot of pressure on yourself when you're trying to write something good. But if you're just sitting down and you are typing, you're literally moving the words and the story around, you're going to get warmed up. There was a guy I worked with at DreamWorks, and his thing would just be to sit down and like rev up the engine, just like stream of consciousness, just to get started, just to get warm. I feel like most of the time when it's block, like Scott says, it's, you know, you're wrestling with something. I think sometimes things aren't ready. There's something that you've got to bake kind of in your in the back of your brain for a little while. It needs more time. And then sometimes I think it's just like I have writer's laziness. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't I don't know that I have writer's block. Like, like I, I don't know that I've experienced that. If anything, I feel like I don't have enough hours in the day or years of my life to write all the things I really want to write. And sometimes, you know, the most sexy thing is that project that I'm not working on right now. So that sometimes it's a distraction that's making it so that I'm struggling with the, the to-do list, you know, because the grass is always greener, you know, that other project looks sexier because I'm not writing it. That other project looks better or more interesting because I don't have to do the heavy lifting. I don't have to do the work. So that's another benefit of the partnership is that if you know I'm meeting with Josh in two weeks and we're going to exchange stuff we've written, I better darn well have that written. Yeah. Whereas, where if it was just me, ah, I can put it off another two weeks. Yeah. Right. There's more accountability. Yep. Is there an editor involved in this? Is there someone who's saying, hey, guys, this is great, but how about we change this and change this? Absolutely. We have a wonderful editor. Yeah, Brittany Rubiano at Disney Hyperion, who's absolutely wonderful. And we say kind of in our acknowledgments that we're pretty sure she loves Captain Kevin more than we do. And we think that's probably true. She just she was a real advocate for the book from the very beginning. And at this point, the journey's been like four years. So one of the things that she really helped bring to the process was um, we had these journal entries from Captain Kevin. It was an opportunity to kind of get into his head and monologue, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, those are some of her favorite moments of the book. And she advised, and rightly so, that we do more of that. And, you know, it was a really incredible opportunity to see more of the world through this wacky character's point of view. And she was, you know, dead on right about that. I mean, one of the joys of Britney specifically, and, you know, and any other even story editor I've worked with or producer, if they get it, if they get what you're trying to do, that's a gift. And Brittany really got what we were trying to do with Shipwreckers. We didn't have to explain it to her. She totally understood it. And so any of the discussions that we'd have from an editorial standpoint was just like, oh, are we burying this moment? Are we burying this joke? Let's make sure we have some more room here for it to breathe, that sort of thing. And yeah, she was a great set of eyes that, again, could see things from 10,000 feet where we're mired in the individual chapters and individual sentences she's like oh this area you kind of dropped out this character for three chapters oh my god we we do we have to keep threading that in but yeah she was a she was an advocate 
since when we originally pitched it, it wasn't, we didn't write a full manuscript, which is very unusual. We um, wrote out what each chapter would be, like a, a treatment or an outline, and did a couple sample chapters, and we sold it on that. Yeah. Um, and that's because, largely because of her faith in she'd seen us write before on Jungle Book. She was our editor, and she knew we could pull this off, and she understood what we were trying to do. At what point were you guys ready to say, you know what, this thing is finished? When was it finished? How long have you been promoting, waiting, preparing for it? Polishing it for like two years. Oh, wow. But, I, think, but I, think, I think we got, at, most of the time we were waiting, I think we wrote our first draft that we turned in in like two, three months. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And that was, that was largely because of the publisher's needs, that they had to get it in their hands right away. But then, yeah, the polishing and all the different iterations took another year, year. plus. Yeah. And the, one of the things that we're learning about um, the book world is uh, certainly in animation, things can take time. On average, you know, once you've delivered storyboards, it takes, you know, nine months until you see finished animation. And depending on the studio, depending on how you're working. And like for the book world, it's even more glacial than that. So I think our animation experience and trying to be patient with the process, because it takes what it takes, you know, because there's advertising, there's, you know, advanced reader copies that go out. There's like a whole rollout of when this shows up in their list, they call it. And all of these things are planned out like a year ahead of time. Years, in some cases, 18 months out where they're like, okay, this book is coming out for our summer season. And so these are all the things working back from that date that we need to have and we need to do. And we had to give them time also like for the illustrations. There's beautiful illustrations from Brian that uh, every chapter. And so he had to have time to do those after we had turned in what was pretty much a final copy. Yeah. But yeah, it was well worth the wait. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What are you guys most excited for? You must be like, just like at this point, you spent so much time on it. You're just kind of like just waiting for it to come out. What are you most excited for readers to experience when they uh, pick up this book? The weight of it. I think that we want them to experience the, <laughs> that it's a real hard, heavy book. That, bug that, that is they most important. They can use it as a weapon if yes. they need to. Um, they can use it as a doorstop because it's hardcover. So, you know, it's big enough. And I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of not. There's something about having a physical object in your hands that none of it existed before it came out of our heads. That's like now there's something True. in the world that wasn't there before. And it's not quite the same if it's on a Kindle or on, you know, your iPad. There's something about the physical book that's cool and seeing it in a bookstore. But beyond that, I think we want the kids just to laugh, to actually have fun and have a little adventure and, and just to have people read it. It's been so long in our heads without people reading it. We want to know what they actually think. Yeah, I'm really lucky because uh, Scott and I both have kids and his are uh, older, mine are eight and ten. And my eldest... Uh, Katie, she's 10, and like she, she's actually read the book and laughed and awesome. complained to me about how obnoxious Captain Kevin is. And like, that's the greatest feeling in the world. It's like, you know, I want to know what other people's favorite parts are or, you know, what characters or moments they connect with. Um, and like Scott said, it's like the tangible quality of it. You know, so much of animation is completely like you, you can't touch it anymore. And so by the time it goes out, you see it on people's screens, but it's, it's rarely a visceral experience. You can't hand it to anybody. So the idea of being able to like, uh, of our work becoming an art object and, you know, the Brittany actually uh, spearheaded this whole 
idea that the book is actually a little bit taller than most hardcovers. And so it, and it really stands out on the shelf. And so it is this unique art object. Um, and that is really exciting that, you know, to be able to hand that to people that I care about and like go, I have the story that I, I told for you. Like I, I want you to read that. I want to share with you. That's crazy exciting. What's the difference uh, in the process, the biggest difference or biggest challenge going from working with a team of writers to working with just yourselves, going from TV to writing a, a, a novel? What would you say? I know you mentioned uh, working with a team earlier and you want to talk about Phineas and Fern, that process. Like, What would you say is the biggest challenge going from that to this? When you're writing a book, there are less annoying opinions in the room than a writer's room. Writer's room, it's it's fun. There's a lot of energy there, but you also get a lot of different points of view, a lot of different suggestions, and figuring out which to go with. Sometimes you can go around in a two-hour meeting, you just go round and round in circles, and you never actually get anywhere. So I felt like we were much more focused on this mm -hmm. than than in a on a TV series. Yeah, there's a lot of wrangling that has to be done, and you know, working on shows with smart people actually is a gift and can be an extraordinary experience creatively. But I think, you know, if you don't have a clear idea of what that goal is, that, that gets to be exhausting. And where, you know, the beauty part about this is that it's ours. Like, we made it up. Like, nobody else knows Shipwreckers the way we do outside of maybe Brittany. And so the idea that we can have some, you know, creative ownership over the finished product, I mean, there's things in there that Scott and I wrote that no one else touched. You know, there's things that literally came out of our first draft and have remained untouched and are in print, and people are literally going to get to read our words. And the thing that happens in animation more often than not is that your intent might survive, your story element or idea might survive, the concept might survive, but the actual execution so many people have a say in or are going to touch and tweak and adjust. You know, it's like we said, our original impetus for this was like to get the jokes in that we think are funny and crack us up. And a lot of those made it to print in Shipwreckers. And that's, that's very rarely the case when it comes to animation. Yeah, anytime you get into the entertainment industry as a writer, you have to know you're the, you're the blueprint for what everything that's going to come. The director's going to change it. The, in animation, the voice director is going to change it. The board artists are going to change it. The showrunner is going to change it. The studio is going to have notes. So it hopefully doesn't get too watered down, and it's still fun, but it's always going to change. You can't be precious about it. And I think writing a novel, you get a little more preciousness. Yeah, there's an opportunity for the right kind of preciousness. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you guys are really excited about this book coming out, but what is next on the horizon? Do you have a show on the works that you're like, Let's work on this together. You know, is there another book? Is this going to be a trilogy? What's uh, the future have in store? All of the above? All of the above, yeah. Uh, nice. We're hoping this book is going to be a trilogy. We, we pitched it originally as a trilogy, and so there's the opportunity. Uh, Disney has, has the rights, if they want to make more, to come back to us and say, let's keep going. Yeah, so hopefully people get excited and the numbers will, will allow for that. That's what we're hoping. And then as, as Josh alluded to earlier, we're working on a, a horror book for kids that we're hoping would turn into a series. And we haven't pitched that yet. We're still finessing yeah, it. Yeah, we're still finessing but it. But we're getting close. Um, Last Kids is taking up most of Scott's time right now. 
but it's it's coming out in September on Netflix, and it should really be phenomenal for boys in particular, but I think I think for everybody. For it's, everybody, yeah. It's beautiful looking, and it's full of, like I said, monsters and zombies. And we had a great writing team. Uh, Max is a really open collaborator, and he created just an incredible world and characters that are really in line with Scott and I's sensibilities anyways. But we had a great room. Uh, the folks at Atomic are super talented. And so the, the work that's been coming back that Scott's shared with me a little bit, I've been able to see behind the scenes. Um, it's really a, a great looking show. And so we really hope that that, you know, really finds its audience too. Because um, people seem to really eat up the books and we really expand on that universe in the yeah. show. We've got a great cast with uh, Mark Hamill and Catherine O'Hara oh, wow. and... Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell. So, it's really exciting. I, is there anything else we're working on? We've got, we've got lots of ideas we want to work on together, but I think we yeah we're, we're, we can't start another one until we finish. Right. That's that's what one we're of the, on now. that's actually glad you said that because that's one of the big things is like we have to finish stuff. It's like the only way Shipwreckers happen is that we finished it. You know, we finished Jungle Book. We finished Shipwreckers. We're gonna finish this book. Um, I have an original that's out there being shopped right now, another middle grade book, but it's like, it doesn't happen until you finish it. Yeah. And so I think that's another one of the things that our TV experience has really taught us. It's like, you've got to wrap that thing up. You've got to get it ready so you can get it in, into someone else's hands. I think it'd be great to show run something together, especially if it's something that we made up. Yeah. I think that would be tremendous. Um, I, I think right now, I think the beauty part of being able to kind of, you know, two tier it where we get to work in TV, but also doing originals on the publishing side. Like right now, it's a really nice balance. It, it would be a real dream come true to be able to bounce back and forth between, you know, sequels to Shipwreckers or the next thing and uh, continue to work in television. Working in television is really exciting because there's so many opportunities to tell stories. You know, people are a lot less precious and you have more chances at bat. So that's one of the things I really love about TV. Yeah, you've got to churn out a story a week, so you just got to keep going. Yeah. Well, I know you guys are very excited about Shipwreckers uh, and Last Kids, but are you ready for something we like to call a series of seemingly random questions? Yes, yeah. please. These are a little more fun. All right, the first question. I got a lot of them, so I got to pick the first one. Okay. If you could suggest a question that we ask one of our next guests, what would you want to be asked? What would you suggest we pass on to the next guest on our show? Uh, most embarrassing romantic encounter. Most Please embarrassing romantic encounter. Wow. So what's your most embarrassing romantic encounter? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say I'd answer it. See, you set yourself up for that one. You really did. Uh, I would say asking people, <laughs> like, what keeps them writing? What keeps them uh, writing? What keeps you writing? Because it can be so discouraging, you know, for a myriad of reasons. But, you know, you know, why do you keep at it? Why do you keep putting words to paper? Comfort foods. Tell me about them. We've heard that some writers have their uh, guilty pleasures in the writer's room, whether it's a bag of chips or, uh, I don't know, what do you guys there, there are two restaurants that Josh and I go to whenever we're meeting. Uh, a pizza place that makes really deep dish pizza and a Mexican place that I don't think is all that good. It's But they make good guacamole. 
Yeah, but, I, I never had deep dish pizza before I met Scott, which is so stupid because <laughs> uh, I'm a 41 year old man. But like, I like it's so good. It's Dino's Pizza in Burbank, and it's fantastic. Uh, but that's yeah, that's those are the places we go when we need to. Yeah, if we're gonna meet about stuff, yeah. But I don't know. I don't eat anything really while I'm writing. I would eat ice cream every day for every meal if I could do that. That's like that's. Mm. That's if, not good for you. If, if if I've had a good day of writing, I want ice cream. And if I've had a bad day of writing, I want ice cream. So that that's, yeah, that's how. Awesome. If you could be any of your characters, who would you be and why? Oh, I'd be Captain Kevin. Oh, yeah, 100%. It, he, he just he thinks he's great and he has fun doing it. And it doesn't matter that he completely messes everything up. There is a delusionary quality to his character that makes him kind of bulletproof. And I think that as writers, you have to have some of that too. Like you need to be a little bit deluded to think you can do this. But that's also really great. That's where hope comes from. And so sometimes it's stupid to think that way. But in, I mean, Captain Kevin's still alive, kind of. So like, like it kind of proves itself out in the wash. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe this, but it makes sense that you can't accomplish things without believing you can. I don't believe the belief helps you do it, which some right. people say that's really what it is. But the lack of belief means, of course, you're never going to do it because you right. don't. if you don't think you can, you've already self-sabotaged. Yes. So um, you have to have that faith. However you lie to yourself to get the yeah. work done, that's the thing. And Captain Kevin is really good at that. Next question. If you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? Dostoevsky to uh, Taco <laughs> Bell. That's amazing. Uh, I, I would want to take uh, Mark Twain to barbecue. Oh. And I would just want to hear him talk. That's a great one. Because I, I, get, I get accused of talking a lot because I talk a lot. And in all the research I've done about Twain, like, he would just come out and like spend all of dinner like talking all the way through his story and then disappear and then go write more. And so the idea of like it's just it's like nonstop story with this guy. And there's times where I like I have to throttle back so I can have relationships because I would talk about this stuff all day long. And so it's like, I want to see what his life was actually like. Like, what was it like to be around him? Like, is it as obnoxious as it seems? Or think. is it fantastic? Like, you know, and not everything someone writes is good all the time. Like, I want to I wanna hear him on his low days. <laughs> like, I want to hear, like, how rough it would get for him, you know? Because he, you know. That sounds terrible. It would be That's, awesome. It's like seeing a bad comedian <laughs> at, a, at the Ice House or something. I think you can learn a lot from that. You can. You can. All right. If you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to those aspiring writers that are listening to this Writer Experience Podcast episode right now, what would you say? I'll say two things. One is write, which everybody says, but you just have to write, 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 write. One of the things, I don't remember who said it, but it's like the worst thing written is better than the best thing unwritten. Meaning if it's, if it's in your head, it doesn't do any good to anybody. So even if it's on paper and it's not perfect, it exists now. It's something. You can show it to somebody. And the other thing, which we said earlier, is, is to feel free to write crap. You don't have to always sit there and write the best sentence on that blank piece of paper. 
start out with something else and go back and fix it. You can edit it later. Yeah. And the only thing I would add is that, you know, it, as long as you know you're doing your best, you have to find the right audience. I've had multiple times in my career where depends on who's looking. You know, take everything with a grain of salt. Um, you know, don't I just read this recently. It's like, you know, don't put a lot of faith in someone's advice who or opinion who you would never ask their advice. You know, if if you would never go to that person to get feedback, it's like, you know, maybe don't take everything they say at face value. You know, I've had lots of opportunities where I've done what I thought was my best work and people didn't react positively to it until I showed it to the right person. You know, uh, the experience I'm having with my current book right now, like, I've got to find the right fit. We were lucky with Shipwreckers that Brittany got it. And we pitched her other stuff that she didn't respond to. So not everyone is going to get everything that you do. Part of the work is finishing it and then finding the right fit, finding the right audience, finding that person who loves it or falls in love with it or cares about it the way that you do. And that takes a lot of time. The last question, Harry, can you please pass me the envelope? Oh, I'm opening the envelope. You can't see it because it's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's so dramatic. Did you have fun today? Yeah. Yeah, we had a great time. Yeah, this was fun. Did you guys really have fun? Yes. Yeah. All right. And we will do it again. And you will. We'll have you back on. Was there something you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to say? No, I think that's everything. Yeah, I really <laughs> wanted the chance to kind of share our process. So that was yeah, fun. That was super to, fun. To do that. I guess um, the only thing I wanted to say that I didn't get to say is that sometimes Josh P. Red. <laughs> what? <laughs> what the? Sometimes wow. Josh P. Red. Wow. That's a first um, on this podcast. So, did you guys want to plug one last plug? Last kids, shipwreckers. Shout out the date. Shout out the everything. Tell us what we should uh, be looking out for. Last Kids on Earth premieres on Netflix in September of this year, and Shipwreckers: The Curse of the Cursed Temple of Curses, or We Nearly Died, Alox comes out May twenty first. Yeah, check it out, gang. Amazing. And uh, check spread the out. word. Spread the word. And and yeah, if you like it. Put a review up on uh, Amazon Goodreads, or Goodreads. Amazon, yeah. And if you don't like it, just keep that to yourself. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it sounds like censorship, my friends. Um, so, well. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. We had a lot of fun. Maybe one of the most fun episodes. You guys seems like you have too much fun for writers. You need to be more brooding and uh, no, Scott, jaded. Scott, I'm, I'm on my best behavior today. You know, so. Yeah, he's got that covered. Guaranteed. All right. Well, thanks again. Let's do this again. And uh, thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you all next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.